0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Pyramid Schemes – Philosophy in Ancient Egypt Near the beginning of Aristotle's Metaphysics, there is an interesting reflection on the development of abstract thought. Aristotle thinks that only humans are capable of this because only we can rise above memory and experience of individual things to reach the level of universals. This allows us to develop the arts and sciences. No doubt he muses, the very first inventor of the very first art, must have been admired as wise and superior above all others. So perhaps Aristotle would have appreciated our own musings about prehistoric humanity in episode two. He then points out that Arts would generally have been developed for their usefulness, or to give pleasure. Traditionally Aristotelian examples might be medicine and flute playing, respectively. But eventually, arts emerged that were pursued for their own sake. He even has a guess at where this first happened. When all such inventions were already established, the sciences which do not aim at giving pleasure or at the necessities of life were discovered, and first in the places where men first began to have leisure. That is why the mathematical arts were founded in Egypt, for there the priestly caste was allowed to be at leisure. So, the first completely abstract or theoretical discipline, the first discipline pursued for its own sake rather than for pleasure or usefulness, was, according to Aristotle, born in ancient Egypt. Later on in the metaphysics, he adds that mathematics is one of only three properly theoretical sciences. Natural science is another, and the third is theology, which turns out to be the same thing as first philosophy, later known to its friends as metaphysics. Now, it would be at least misleading, and perhaps simply wrong, to describe Aristotle as saying that the disciplines he pursues in the physics or metaphysics were born in Egypt. Indeed, he is generally understood as regarding Thales as the first philosopher, although this is a fine time to recall that Thales is said to have visited Egypt and learned some mathematics there, specifically geometry. Still, when considering how Aristotle understood the relation of Egyptian thought to the history of philosophy, there are two things worth keeping in mind. First, many who take philosophy to have been born in ancient Greece argue that it was the Greeks who first engaged in abstract thought. This was supposedly a new breakthrough, in contrast with the mythical thinking of Egypt, Mesopotamia, and other civilizations. Clearly, Aristotle would disagree. He credits the Egyptians with being the very first to achieve abstract thought. Secondly, Aristotle did not to our knowledge have any direct access to or ability to read the writings of ancient Egyptians. Thanks to modern Egyptology, we by contrast have access to surviving texts, which puts us in a position to ponder whether an Aristotle who could read hieroglyphics, as if the real Aristotle wasn't impressive enough, might have said even more by way of acknowledging the priority of Egyptian thought. In this and the next several episodes, we are going to do some acknowledging of our own, by telling you about several works of a philosophical nature that survive from ancient Egypt. We will start in this episode by discussing reflections on the nature of things, focusing especially on Akhenaten, a monarch who challenged, or more accurately, temporarily replaced, traditional Egyptian religion. We will then move from metaphysics towards questions of moral philosophy, by discussing the declarations of innocence in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. First though, let's consider a set of writings from ancient Egypt that has been treated as a philosophical reflection on the nature of things, and which dates back at least as far as the 24th century BC, making these writings more than one and a half millennia older than the pre-Socratic thinkers discussed when this podcast series first launched. The writings in question are known as the Pyramid Texts. They are, or at least appear to be, sets of spells, Intended to serve the royal owners of the tombs in which they were inscribed during their journey into the afterlife. It is safe to say that they are among the oldest religious texts in the world, and there is no doubt that anyone interested in Egyptian mythology will find them to be of interest. Whether they are in any sense philosophical is a more difficult question. Here is a quotation from what may be the oldest pyramid text found in the tomb of Unis, the last king of Egypt's fifth dynasty. Pull back baboon's penis. Open sky's door. Use sealed door. Open a path for Unus on the blast of heat where the gods scoop water. Horus's glide path will Unus glide on, in this blast of heat where the gods scoop water. And they will make a path for Unus that Unus may pass on it. Unus is Horus. As this quotation suggests, the pyramid texts are exciting to read, but also very difficult to understand. Can we discern any philosophy here? A scholar named Susan Brind Morrow has recently argued that the answer is yes. According to her, what we have here are not in fact spells, but a form of philosophy written in poetic verse, an attempt to answer such perennial questions as what is life on earth? How does it relate to time and the interrelationship of all things? What is death and what survives death? Another scholar, and a translator of the pyramid texts, James P. Allen, is not impressed he has criticized Morrow's work as a misrepresentation of the texts, a poet's impression of what she thinks the text should say, and not a reflection of what they actually say. Rather than getting hung up on the question of whether to bestow the name of philosophy on these inscriptions, let's step back and consider the cosmological vision that can be pieced together from the pyramid texts and subsequent related writings. We mentioned Thales earlier, who is famous for believing that all things are in some sense derived from water In light of that, it's intriguing that the creator God envisioned in these texts is not described as simply always having been there. Before the existence of anything else, he emerged out of Nun, the primordial waters. Given that Thales is said to have visited Egypt, some have wondered whether he may have picked up his water obsession there, along with his skill in geometry. If so, it would be a case in which mythological representations of things influenced philosophical doctrine not the last time we'll observe this phenomenon in the present series of podcasts but whatever lines of influence may be found here it would be a profound mistake to reduce egyptian thought and its reflection on the nature of things to mythology take imhotep who lived during the 3rd dynasty of egypt somewhere around the 27th century bc he is sometimes celebrated as the first great scientific thinker of the ancient world he was the chief advisor to king joser the first king of Egypt to have ordered the construction of a pyramid, the Step Pyramid of Djoser, which can still be visited today, is a major feat of engineering, and it is Imhotep who is credited with being its architect. An inscription at the base of a statue found in the Step Pyramid tells us that Imhotep was also an administrator, a high priest, and a sculptor. Already he's starting to rival our hypothetical hieroglyphic reading Aristotle in the annals of polymath geniuses, but there's even more. Later generations of Egyptians remembered him first and foremost as a master physician. He was eventually deified as a god of medicine, and later still identified by the Greeks with their demigod of medicine, Asclepius. There is an ancient Egyptian medical text known as the Edwin Smith Papyrus, which is remarkable for its systematic and relatively magic-free approach to diagnosing and treating injuries. Some Egyptologists have speculated that Imhotep could be its author. Even if Imhotep did not write the words set down on that papyrus, though, we still have reason to think that he composed works of lasting importance. Two texts, the Song of the Harper from the tomb of King Intef and The Immortality of Writers, both of which were evidently written many centuries after Imhotep's time, invoke him as a paradigmatic example of a beloved and oft-read author. Both texts thematize the way that our wise words may live on after we die so it is a sad irony that we do not seem to have access to any words that can be ascribed with certainty to Imhotep. On the bright side, he is included alongside other named authors who did, in some cases, write, or to whom are ascribed, texts that have survived in whole or in part. In most cases, those texts are instructions, which belong, as we'll discuss in the next episode, to a tradition of moral philosophy. Did Imhotep likewise make his literary mark through insights into the question of how one ought to live? Or was he solely remembered for texts that exhibited his knowledge of the human body as a great physician, like what we can read in the Edwin Smith papyrus? Perhaps he even set down, in writing, the fruits of his expertise in the manipulation of materials as a sculptor, engineer, and architect. The most philosophically exciting possibility of all, of course, is that in his writing, he somehow combined and synthesized these varied interests, but let's move on now to someone whose words can still be read today, Akhenaten, the monumentally important king who was seen by many as the first known proponent of monotheism. His reign in the mid-14th century BC has been called perhaps the most exhilarating, uncertain, dynamic, and bizarre period in Egyptian history. He inherited the throne from his father, Amenhotep III, and was initially known as Amenhotep IV. Early in his reign, though, he renamed himself Akhenaten, which might be translated as he who acts effectively on behalf of the Aten. The Aten was a sun god, or perhaps one aspect of the sun god, specifically its representation as a disc in the sky. Akhenaten elevated the Aten as a god above all other gods, and eventually made it the official religious view of the kingdom that there was no other god but the Aten. To reflect this new belief, he ordered the daunting task of removing the names and images of any other gods from temples, tombs, and monuments. Along with his wife Nefertiti, who held a position of equality with her husband, unmatched by most other Egyptian queens, Akhenaten oversaw massive changes in the society he ruled, including the founding of a new capital, Akhetaten, where a roofless temple facilitated very direct worship of the Aten. There can be no doubt that one effect of Akhenaten's religious revolution, if not its primary motivation, was to concentrate power in Akhenaten's hands, for he positioned himself as the son of the Aten, and the only one capable of fully knowing and interpreting the will of this solitary divinity. To see Akhenaten's monotheism as nothing more than a power grab, though, would be to overlook its philosophical interest. Consider the beginning of a text generally assumed to be composed by him, the Great Hymn to the Aten. It reads, You rise in perfection on the horizon of the sky, living Aten, who determines life. Whenever you are risen upon the eastern horizon, you fill every land with your perfection. You are appealing, great, sparkling, high over every land. Your rays embrace the lands as far as everything you have made. Two themes are especially worth emphasizing here, the universal reach of the Aten and the naturalistic description of this god as the visible shining sun. The way the Aten fills every land with light points us towards the way that monotheism may naturally be connected to a sense that the world itself is a unity, despite all the distances and differences between those of us who live in it. According to Akhenaten, the Aten is the ultimate source and the active sustainer of all lands, near or far. When he mentions specific neighboring lands in the Middle East and Africa, like the Levant to the northeast and Nubia to the south, their positioning in relation to the Aten suggests a kind of equality with Egypt, a surprising contrast to the way that ancient Egyptians usually insisted on the superiority of their own land to all others. Akhenaten also celebrates the diversity of the world, treating linguistic differences and even the physical difference of skin colors as the benevolent doing of the one god who created all of these people. Here, theological innovation, appears to have brought about a new understanding of what human beings share and how that relates to what makes us different from one another. His theological purposes notwithstanding, though, this is also a highly naturalistic text. It is obvious that the Great Hymn to the Aten describes the physical sun as we see it in the sky. This may not sound like a radical break with tradition. After all, one of the few things most of us will know about Egyptian gods is that one of the most important was Ra, a sun god. Like most Egyptian gods, however, Ra was traditionally represented with human and animal features. By the time Akhenaten's father reigned, Ra was often fused together with the god Amun as Amun-Ra and depicted with a human body and a falcon's head. Akhenaten vigorously suppressed the cult of Amun-Ra. The great hymn itself identifies the Aten with Ra, but Akhenaten avoids representing this god as having any human or animal characteristics the god is just the disc of the sun, a position that has led some to ask whether we should perhaps consider Akhenaten a natural philosopher, or perhaps even an atheist who radically rejected the supernatural aspects of his tradition. Even if we are reluctant to go that far, the philosophical significance of Akhenaten's religious revolution, its transformative power not merely on a social level but at the level of rational thought concerning the nature of things, should by now be clear. But as revolutions go, this was a short lived one. Just a few years after Akhenaten's death, efforts to erase his heresy began. His son, Tutankhamun, took the throne at the age of nine and changed his name to Tutankhamun, thus indicating the resurrection of the worship of Amun Ra. Listeners may more readily recognize the modern shortened version of his name, King Tut. Despite famously dying while still a teen, Tutankhamun had time enough to initiate the return of Egypt to the religious traditions, interrupted by the brief embrace of monotheism. Alongside beliefs about the gods, another religious tradition strongly associated with the ancient Egyptians is of course their elaborate conception of the afterlife, the most celebrated description of which can be found in the text popularly known as the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Egyptologists often refer to it as the Book of Coming or Going, Forth by Day. Individualized versions of it were prepared for burials, in a practice that evokes the earlier pyramid texts. Like those earlier inscriptions, the Book of the Dead touches on cosmological issues, but what is perhaps most intriguing to the philosophical eye is what it has to say about morality. Chapter 125 of the Book of the Dead features what have been paradoxically labeled the negative confessions, that is, confessions about what one has not done. But they're also known, less oxymoronically, as the declarations of innocence. The person journeying into the afterlife confronts a tribunal of 42 gods and addresses each of them individually in order to assert innocence of various kinds of wrongdoing. Some of the declarations are I have not stolen. I have not slain people. I have not destroyed the food offerings. I have not told lies. I have not had intercourse with a married woman. I have not been hot-tempered. I have not been impatient. And my voice was not loud. To which it is natural to respond, really? Are you sure you haven't done any of that? The declarations take place in the Hall of the Two Truths. And in keeping with this, one of the declarations is that no lies have been told. Yet it seems irresistible to suspect that any person undergoing this process will make declarations, not least that one about having told no lies, that are simply untrue. So, is this series of declarations more like a spell, meant to guarantee unfettered passage through the afterlife? If so, perhaps the demand for strict adherence to truth would be misplaced. Yet, this list of wrongdoings remains an expression of ancient Egyptian ethics, a kind of not-to-do list which offers us an implicit guide about how one should live. One person who has stressed their importance is a thinker alive today who will cover later in his own right, Maulana Karenga, the African-American intellectual and activist who is most widely known as the inventor of the holiday Kwanzaa. Karenga wrote a doctoral thesis in social ethics at the University of Southern California and published that thesis as a book entitled Maat, The Moral Ideal in Ancient Egypt. Karenga identifies the declarations of innocence as a central source of ancient Egyptian moral principles and practice. More generally, the point of his groundbreaking study is that Egyptian thinking about morality is not merely a matter of historical interest, but offers the basis for a living ethical tradition. Of course, however important as a source of ethics they may be, the declarations do not represent philosophy in an explicitly argumentative mode, and for that matter, neither does Akhenaten's great hymn. So, skeptics out there may be wondering whether philosophical thoughts in ancient Egypt were ever presented in that form. Do any writings offer a reasoned defense of ethical doctrines instead of just setting out those doctrines or alluding to them implicitly? Our positive answer will come in the form of another episode on ancient Egyptian thought, in which we will focus on the genre of writings known as instructions or teachings. After that episode, even the most skeptical of listeners should be like an Egyptian alligator that has wandered up onto the shore, no longer in denial. That's here next time on The History of Africana Philosophy.